You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. Great to be with you. Great to see you. My name is Brady Goodwin. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here and uh, get the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning and hearing him speak to us. As Shay mentioned at the beginning of our time, we are uh, at the, uh, the, the first few weeks of a series addressing the mission, the vision, and the values of Northway Church. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Shay taught about our, our mission, which is to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, that our entire purpose of existence is God's mission of proclaiming the gospel, of introducing men and women to the Lord Jesus, and of teaching them to love and follow him all the days of their life. Flowing directly from that mission is what we um, are praying that God would do in our midst as we seek him in our city, and that's our vision, that our city would encounter the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of Jesus Christ, that as we pursue our discipleship mission as a church, that that doesn't stop with us, but it spills over into the city of Dallas and the cities that surround it for the glory of Christ and the good of the people of the city. Today and for the next 12 weeks, we will be thinking through together 12 specific values. These values are the defining characteristics that mark our church as we pursue our mission and vision. They're not exclusive or exhaustive, but they're characteristic. They're the things that distinguish Northway as a body of believers pursuing the mission of God in our city. So we start today with the first value, the foundational value, and that is the value of Scripture. And the way we're phrasing this is that this value looks like this, that we embrace, Northway Church embraces the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's Word. We embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's Word. Let me tell you a little bit about what we think that means before we get further into our time. First, we believe that all Scripture is true and is without error. What Scripture says is true and is without error. We believe, second, that what God says, therefore, holds authority over what we believe and do. And third, that we believe that Scripture is sufficient or enough to equip us to live a life pleasing to God in every circumstance we may face. I don't want to simply tell you, though, what this means, But I want to show you from the Word of God. And so our passage today is in the book of 2 Timothy. I'm going to invite you to turn there. We'll be looking at 2 Timothy 3. And we're going to look at that whole chapter all the way up to 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. If you're using one of the Bibles, uh, one of our Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find 2 Timothy 3 on page 996. We'll be in 2 Timothy 3. And what this text is going to do is to answer in three parts a really important question, which is why is it essential that we embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of the Word of God? Why is it essential that we start here? And this text is going to tell us three reasons why. We'll look first at 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to see the first reason. The first reason that we must embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's Word is that because life pursued apart from the Word of God leads to disaster. 
It, it leads to disaster. Look with me at chapter three, verse one. It says this, but understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. If you were to ask any physician or medical researcher, medical professional about disease, they're going to tell you that illness shows up through symptoms that point to pathology. What you see on the surface is not all that's there, but it's symptomatic of deeper problems. Addressing symptoms then is not unimportant, but it's not ultimate in bringing healing to a person's life. The goal instead is to target the cause, the true source of the problem. This kind of descriptive diagnosis is what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, presents in this section of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is part of what's known in the New Testament as the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Three letters that were written to two people whom Paul had discipled and raised up in ministry. And he's writing to them to instruct these men. And in this letter, Timothy in particular, as a disciple and a young pastor. These first two chapters focus on Timothy's foundation and ministry. And in the first part of chapter three, which we just read, Paul shifts his focus towards the challenges that Timothy can expect in his ministry. He starts off with a list of symptoms. Symptoms that are specific to Timothy's historical context, but they're not limited there. They show up in our age as well. In other words, we're subject to the same kinds of problems that were present in Timothy's day. What do these things represent? We'll look a little bit closer and we're going to see that on the surface, we see in these symptoms the fruit of sinful desire and idolatry. We talked about idolatry last week. All that is, is the, cre the worship of creation instead of creator. These things that we read in the first few verses are symptoms, and it's a pretty severe list, isn't it? Paul says that people are going to love themselves instead of others, and in their pride, they will devalue and diminish other people for their own sinful gain. They'll cut other people down in word and deed, and they'll live for their unrestrained lusts rather than for the love of God. This kind of list, these symptoms, takes on even more significance if we take a step back and we think about the purpose for which God created us in the first place and the kind of devastation that sin has produced. 
If you'll remember from the very beginnings of Scripture, we, we learn that people are made in the image of God. And they were created to live in joyful and dependent submission to God as both our Creator and our Lord. That we were meant then to display the glory of God to the world around us. But the first humans eventually, they believed a lie. They believed a lie that God's words couldn't be trusted. They believed the lie that they instead needed to rule their own life in a vain attempt to be like the one who created them. And as a result, they rebelled against the rule of God. And what resulted? Alienation, corruption, devastation, and ultimately death. These four characteristics have colored all of human history since that time. Sin's corruption is born into our hearts. And its primary symptom is the innate rebellion that's expressed in our lives from our earliest days. Though we were created to live dependent upon God, we refuse. And instead, we seek to live an autonomous life apart from him so that the symptoms we read in verses one through five, this is what happens when our life and purpose are separated from the truth of God and his loving rule. But in verses six and following, Paul describes a specific group of people who would come from those within those who were swept away by sin's pathology and that this group of people would actually lead other people astray. Jonathan Jambres, most likely an oral tradition passed down to Paul, but describing the sorcerers in Egypt during the time just before the Exodus who sought to replicate the miracles of God, but they did so without God's power. There would be people, Paul says, that are just like these who oppose the truth of God. They stand in error for exactly the same reason, their opposition to God's truth. And here's what's ironic and confusing and surprising about their opposition. They stood in opposition to hope. They stood in opposition to the beautiful hope that in spite of our rebellion, that God made a way for restoration and reconciliation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the hope that as all people are called to believe and love and trust in this Savior, they can be freed from a life of self-rule and begin to live their lives for Him instead of themselves. But instead, their opposition to the gospel would not only affect themselves, but they would influence other people away from the truth as well. This is what Paul talks about in verse 7. When he says that these who were captured by these false teachers, they would always be learning but they would never be able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. They would always be looking for something to address the symptoms of a broken life, but would instead come again and again to the source of their pathology themselves, looking for answers within rather than looking to the one that can actually make things right. It's pretty tempting for us to read a text like this and go, well, okay, Another time, 2,000 years ago, another group of people. But Paul's not talking about some group out there. He's writing to Timothy to prepare him for ministry to so-called Christians. He's writing to Timothy to help him understand the challenges he would face ministering to people who claim to be Christians. 
According to verse five, some of these folks would look pretty cleaned up on the outside. They would have the appearance of godliness, but this temporary external facade would be disconnected from the source of life and it couldn't bear up under the weight of scrutiny. The reason this is, is because the symptoms of our pathology show up anytime God's truth is neglected in our lives, anytime. Sometimes we see this in big ways. If we fast forward to today, but a lot of times the symptoms are more subversive and subtle. We take small steps away from the sufficiency of God's grace for sinners in Jesus. And instead we move toward an alternative narrative, never realizing that the things we feel like we need to add to the message of grace are the things that ultimately become more important than that message itself. Sometimes this is reflective of the shifts in wider culture. If we think back to the last 20 years and how quickly our understandings as a culture around things like sexual identity and sexual ethics have changed, but it isn't as if it started there. Those big shifts mirror small steps away from the truth of God, so much so that we could also look at the trajectory of the last 200 years and the rise of secular thought and the way in which that influence has touched literally everything about the way you and I think whether it's philosophy, history, psychology, or what we do, whether it's ethics, relationships, family dynamics, and so forth. Whatever the expression, the effects are pervasive and far-reaching, just as we've seen. It may not have begun with you and I, but we're willing participants. But here's what's amazing. By God's grace, there is a remedy to the pathology of sin and the devastation that comes when we seek to construct a life apart from God's truth. And that brings us to the second reason why we embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. If the first reason is because a life apart from the truth of God leads to disaster, the second is because a life lived dependent upon the word of God leads to transformation. Look with me at verse 10. You, however, Paul writing to Timothy, you, Timothy, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In verses 10 through 13, Paul points out what makes Timothy distinct. Instead of following the sinful lusts of a self-deceived heart, Timothy followed the truth of Paul's 
teaching. But notice how Paul describes his own experiences. It's not like he's spared from difficulty or suffering because of his adherence to the truth. Rather, because his foundation was the truth of God in Christ, he was equipped to endure, knowing that God himself would bring the rescue that he needed. In contrast, those who oppose God would only get worse, continuing in their deception. But then look with me at verse 14, as we see how Paul encourages Timothy in response to the rise of sin's pathology. Look at what he says. He says, you continue. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Instead of a life of self-rule, pride, idolatry, deception, unrestrained lust, folly, and a facade, you continue in the things you've learned and the things you believed. This verb continue is the same verb that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And we would translate it in other places as remain or abide. When Jesus in John 15 says, abide in me and I in you, it's the same word. So we could restate Paul's words here to say, if you want protection against the threats of sins, symptoms, and pathologies, remain and abide in the truth of God. For Timothy, this is something that he was raised in his entire life. At the beginning of this letter, Paul mentions Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, and how he had been raised from childhood through the truth of the gospel. They were both Christians, and they instructed Timothy in his early life. And this is why Paul, in verse 15, speaks of Timothy being familiar with these truths from his earlier days. He was familiar with them through what? Through the sacred writings. It's a term he uses to refer to the scriptures. And so for Paul to remain means then to continue to hold fast to the truth found in God's words, to cherish them, to meditate upon them, to delight in them, to find our understanding of our world, of God, ourselves from it, and to believe all that it says. And then look at verse 15, he says something else that's amazing to Timothy. He says that scripture, as a result, is able to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to pull out a bit of a comparison. Earlier, we said that the symptoms of sin's pathology show up anytime someone deviates from the truth of God. But now, in contrast, Paul is saying that it's through the truth of God that comes salvation. For us to understand the magnitude of this statement, we have to set aside what ends up being an often narrow definition of salvation that can get attached to this statement. Sometimes we look at this statement and we just think it's talking about forgiveness and reconciliation in something of a narrow sense. You can have your past wiped away and you can be brought back to God, but implicitly we believe from now on, it's up to you to do what's right. Not only is that a distortion of the gospel, but it's something that even believers fall prey to because we'll look at this passage and we'll say scripture's enough for salvation, but I need something else to help me with the real problems in my life. But Paul is saying more. He's saying so much more. You'll remember back about 10 years ago in 2010, there was an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. BP's British Petroleum, Deepwater Horizon oil rig for five months, or for months, excuse me, 
Five million barrels of oil spilled into the waters. They eventually reached the shores of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. Some of you may have been there during that time and seen the way in which that disaster affected the ecology of that reason, that region. You remember the way that the spill's effects were felt and known. But I want you to imagine if the response to that spill was simply to find a way to stop the flow of oil and to disregard the cleanup entirely. Millions of barrels of oil left in the waters, left on the beaches, left affecting sea and plant life, the effect of which we'd surely be experiencing a decade later. This is the way we sometimes view the power of the word of God. We will admit that there is hope for salvation through the good news of the gospel in a very narrow sense. Forgiveness before, uh, for, for that we, for all that we committed before we believed to be brought back into relationship with God. In other words, we can stop the spill, but we don't actually believe that God's salvation has the power to address our lives beyond this, to clean up the toxicity and the devastation of sin in our lives and the brokenness it produces. But friends, God's salvation is much deeper than this. It's so far beyond what we often give it credit for. And what Paul is mentioning in this text is more than just a thin view of salvation, but it's the undoing of all of sin's corruption. It's the reverse of the symptoms that we read about in verses one through nine. It's the inbreaking of eternity into our world through the resurrection of Jesus so that we could be able to get a glimpse of the hope that's coming through our own resurrection. As Tolkien has famously put, it's the the truth of all sad things coming untrue. And if our understanding of salvation is narrower than this, then our appreciation of the word of God is going to be just as shallow. So this is us. What will happen is we won't actually cherish and love and depend upon the word of God because we don't understand what it actually is. The message of God's wide mercies and glorious salvation in Christ. And like those whom Paul describes in verses one through nine, we will reject the truth of God in scripture either entirely or in part because we miss just how remarkable a gospel it proclaims and just how remarkable a resource it truly is. It's God's very word to you and I. It's his very speech to us, revealing not only himself, pointing the way of redemption. This is why Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from him. All scripture refers to all scripture. The Old Testament, the New Testament, everything we have in our scriptures comes directly from the breath of God. Its source is found in him. One way to think of this is to speak of scripture then as inspired, which is what we mean often. Some translations will say all scripture is inspired. What we mean when we speak of scripture as inspired is to see it as the product of God's creative breath. Just as God created all that we see through the power of his word, so too has he spoken through the word of scripture. It's its fundamental trait. It's his word to us. So not only does that mean that scripture is true, as we have affirmed already, but that it is authoritative. What God says has authority over my life and your life. Commentator William Mounts would say it in this way, to read scripture is to hear him speak. 
And for us, that means to hear him speak is to obey what he says. This is the reason why our first value as a church is to embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. If we fail to see the scriptures as the very word of God to us, we will ultimately set them aside for some other source of supposed truth to guide us. But this is to miss what God has actually intended his word for. And that's what he describes in verses 16 and 17. So scripture shows us not only the magnitude of salvation, but it also teaches us how to order our lives before God. We start getting into this idea of sufficiency. Look with me at verse 16. We see four purposes in this little part of scripture that show us what does God intend to do through his word? How does he intend for us to see it as the sufficient resource for our life before him? First is this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable and is useful for what? For teaching us what is true. The Bible teaches us comprehensive truths about God, about people, about sin, about its effects, and about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. It speaks of God's character, his love, his grace, and the enduring joy that comes from following Christ through the trials of life as his people await his return. Everything that God says in his word is therefore true and authoritative. And it's to be believed and trusted and cherished and obeyed. Even in things that scripture doesn't directly speak or address, scripture equips us with an accurate understanding for rightly seeing all of human life before God. Scripture is able to teach us what is true and how to see the world. The second is more the negative side of that. Scripture is able then to bring about reproof in our life, to correct wrong beliefs, wrong thinking, wrong perspectives. As you and I read and reflect upon Scripture, God reveals those areas in our lives where we have believed wrongly about Him, where we believed wrongly about ourselves, where we've believed something else besides what He has said that keeps us from embracing fully the hope of the gospel applied to our lives. Reproof means someone being convicted over such false beliefs so that our beliefs might rightly come in line with God's. The third thing, Scripture is profitable for correction. The first two have to do with our inner life, teaching and reproof, what we think, what we believe, how we see our world. The second two have to do with how our lives are expressed externally. First is correction or confronting sin in our lives. It's confronting what shows up externally. And so reproof and correction in this sense are connected. As God uses his word to expose wrong beliefs, he also confronts the sin in our lives that reflect the expression of those beliefs. And then fourth, God uses scripture to teach us how to live for training in righteousness we're equipping in godly living. This purpose follows from the other three. God, through his word, instructs us in what is true, exposes our false beliefs, and confronts us in our sin. But scripture's usefulness continues referring not only to growth in the knowledge of God, but to the pursuit of a transformed life. God uses his word to train us to teach us what it's like to follow Jesus in daily life so that we would learn to observe everything he's commanded. These four purposes come together to lead to an intended result. 
Verse 17, that the man of God would be complete, that we would be mature, that we would be formed, and that from that formation, we would be equipped for every good work. The usefulness of Scripture, its sufficiency for our lives, is meant to overflow into maturity and godliness, but it's also meant to lead to a growing capacity for ministry to other people. Let's put it another way. Our, our growth that comes from the Word of God is not meant to terminate on ourselves, but it's meant to lead to ministering those same truths to one another. So this points to the final reason why it is essential for us to embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. Life apart from the word brings disaster. Life dependent upon the word leads to transformation. Third, life dedicated to obedience to the word leads to glory. Look at chapter four, verse one. Paul again to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Paul now exhorts Timothy, based upon these two preceding truths we've discussed, that life apart from God's word leads to disaster. Life dependent upon it leads to transformation. Paul now exhorts Timothy, Timothy to proclaim this truth, to proclaim it for the exhortation, the edification, and the maturation of the people of God. In other words, he calls Timothy to take what he himself has applied and learned and to bring it to bear on the lives of others for the sake of those he shepherds. He does this because he knows that left to one's own devices, we will drift away from the truth. We will. It's not a strength or weakness kind of thing. You and I, if we live life separated from the word of God, will drift away from the truth. He knows that that will happen and that we will move toward pride, idolatry, and self-rule. We'll grab hold of the latest thing that promises to provide an explanation for our stories. That promises to help us understand why we do what we do or how to have happiness and joy in this life. But all of these will be separated from the most important person involved, God himself, and they will all lead you to depend upon your own strength instead of God's. Paul calls these things what they are. They're myths. They're not true. They can never live up to the promise that they make. And they will always lead you back towards greater self-reliance and away from dependence upon the Lord. What's more, they're pursued in accordance with our own lusts. In verse 3, he says that they will accumulate 
teachers for themselves to suit their own passions. It's not a neutral term. It's the same word that's used elsewhere for lust. Sometimes I wish English translations of the Bible would say the same English word for the same Greek word or same Hebrew word, because elsewhere, this would be translated lusts. I'm sure they had their reasons to suit their own passions, their own sinfully held, idolatrous, disordered desires the things they want apart from God, the things that they see as giving them hope. It's why it's so serious that you and I see the truth, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture as our foundation for life as believers. If we don't, something else is going to creep in. And that something will come to be viewed as necessary to truly live with joy, with understanding, with freedom, or with wholeness. If we deny the truth of Scripture, if we explain away its claim to authority, or if we rely upon something else besides its life-giving power for meaning and direction, we will deny the supremacy of what that word reveals itself, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He will become less, and our wisdom will become more. And so here at Northway, What can you expect from us and how we seek to live out the value that we embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of the Word of God? There's three things that I think are relevant for us today that shape how this value is being pursued in our church. The first is proclamation, that we will always be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Probably on your way to our building today, you passed by other churches. And in no way do I want to be guilty of unfairly criticizing or disparaging another group of people. But I want you to understand that for many of those churches, their foundation long ago departed from the truth of Scripture. And in its place came another emphasis. If you look on their websites, if you see their mission statements, what you see are other priorities. What you see is a devaluation of the supremacy of Christ. What you see elevated is the priority of the wisdom of man. Those are not things that lead to life. And humbly, and by God's help and grace, this church will be about the proclamation of the only hope we have. The person of Jesus come to rescue us and to make us whole. And if you ever hear a sermon here that doesn't exalt the name of Jesus and doesn't come from the revealed word of God, please leave. Because we too will have long ago abandoned our foundation on the truth in favor of something else that can never satisfy Our priority in fulfilling this value is the faithful proclamation of the word of God. The second way that we want to live this out is through our equipping. Shay's going to mention this in a little bit, but part of the reason we have been letting you know about men's and women's Bible classes so that you would have an opportunity to be instructed in the word of God. Part of the reason we encourage you to go through something like steps or to participate in our biblical counseling classes is so that you would be equipped to apply that word not only to your own life, but to the lives of other people. 
We want our equipping to be centered on the revealed word of God so that we can fulfill our mission to make disciples who obey all that Jesus has commanded. And so if you ever take a class here that looks more like the wisdom of the world as opposed to the wisdom of God, if you ever come and sit in the office of one of our staff members and you hear something else in counsel besides the wisdom of God, then we've missed our calling. We've missed the opportunity that we have to exalt and, and lift high the name of Jesus through our faithfulness to God's word. May we always be a people who delight in the word of God for our daily life, applying it personally, but also with one another. The third way that we wanna pursue this value and embrace the truth, authority, and sufficiency of the word of God is in our priorities. We wanna be about the things that God is about. And how do we learn what he's about? We look to his word. This entire series is about our values, but they're directly connected to the priorities of scripture. And may it never be that we elevate a value that looks more like the values of the world rather than the emphases of the word of God. And here's what happens when a church and a people prioritize and pursue the truth, authority, and sufficiency of the word of God as a body of Christ, God is glorified. The gospel is proclaimed. Men and women see and love Jesus Christ. They are conformed to his image. They are led and indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that the word of God would continue to go forth and do what it always has done, which is to bring life. May we always be a body that lives this value out. May we always be people who pursue the things that God values for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, that in your word, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see the hope for our life. We see the power of the gospel. We see the reality that the very thing that we need most, you have provided in yourself. That we're reminded of what we read in Romans 8, that if we are heirs, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and heirs with Christ. May that truth be supreme in our thinking, that we really are your children that as we live our lives, we go about the daily needs that our lives bring us, but we do so always knowing that we are your people, that we are your people not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that you have done. May we therefore cling and depend upon your words to us, the very words of life. Jesus' apostles said to him, where would we even go you have the words of life. May we cherish those words, delight in them, live by them, and may you, by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, guide us to truth. Help us to see the wonder that is your word revealed to us, the hope of Christ. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.